So I'm going to talk about uh, the devoted actor. The devoted actor is different from rational actors of various kinds. And that includes all the traditional critiques of rational actors or hedges of rational actors, like limits on information processing, Donny Kahneman stuff, or indivisibility of resources, James Fearon, or Tom Schelling's stuff on um, the incompatibility of worldviews or the insufficiency of knowledge of other cultural worldviews. And so the general framework is that the rise of civilizations, uncompromising wars, revolutions, and terrorism are driven by devoted actors who adhere to sacred or transcendent values that drive actions independently or all out of proportion from rationally expected outcomes, calculated costs and consequences, or likely risks and rewards. And this is part of our sort of research team, and it includes an interesting group of people. John Alderdice, for example, Lord Alderdice, he was principal architect of the Good Friday Accords and the first speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Bob Axelrod, of course, you all know. By the way, let me put in a plug for Bob, who couldn't be here. He would have given you another talk, a very interesting law called The Timing of Cyber Conflict. So Bob's, over, the, over many years, has figured out when in war you present a new weapon system or a new technology system for the first time, because you only have one shot at surprise, right? And the American and the Israeli military have used his algorithms with striking effect. And now he's just done the similar work on cyber warfare and cybersecurity, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In January, if you look on the web, it certainly stirred a lot of interest by the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese. Uh, Juan Zarate. What? Did you say anything about Stuxnet? Not, not a little bit. Um, Juan Zarate, he, he's the guy in Treasury who set up the International Financial a scheme to stop terrorism and drug cartels and get the Iranians to the uh, bargaining table before he became deputy assistant to the president for national security. So there's a bunch of people who are real on-hands policy kinds of people, as well as uh, sort of academic researchers. Because now just consider the American revolutionaries who, defying the greatest empire of the age, pled their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor in the cause of liberty or death. By the way, in 1776, the Americans had the highest standard of living in the world, much higher than Britain, and yet were willing to sacrifice their lives. By the way, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he said, we hold these truths to be sacred, not self-evident, because they were anything but sacred. He had a huge argument with Ben Franklin, who wanted everything to be reasonable, and Jefferson was saying, are you crazy? I mean, equality, liberty, individual freedom for, for God knows how many years we've had cannibalism, infanticide, oppression of minorities, and all of a sudden a bunch of intellectuals decide that freedom should be, should be the name of the game, certainly not founded by providence or nature. And it's the kind of transcendent values that's very similar to the religious values that have been responsible for moving human beings out of the case. So again, no reasonable study of human history up to the time of the American Revolution would have supported an outlandish declaration of human rights including equality before the law and freedom to pursue happiness. And this sort of harkens back to Thomas Hobbes' notion of the privilege and power of absurdity to which no creature but man is subject. Humans will make their greatest efforts for ill or good for abstract causes and not for kith and kin. And if you think of all the religions and all the political ideological isms ever since the French Revolution secularized universal religions and the Enlightenment, 
They're all salvational religions meant to unite humanity. And uh, in the name of a cause. And they require sublimation of genetic interests. In fact, the very word Islam means that. Submission. Submission of your genetic and tribal in interest to a greater cause. Think about St. Augustine when he asked, after the Visigoths destroyed Rome for the first time in 410 AD, what is that other commonwealth that remains standing now that the mundane commonwealth embodied in the Roman Empire has fallen? It is the idea of Christianity, which was a crazy idea. It was actually built on charity at the beginning before it became co-opted by the Roman Empire. They, they grew at about 4% a year, the Christians. They lived on the margins of Jewish communities. They exempted themselves from the sort of Jewish poll tax. And they treated the women and the marginals of the Roman Empire, especially during plague. And that signal of costly commitment eventually won over the population. So that by the time of Constantine, Christians were actually the majority of the population through those costly acts of sacrifice. So we've done a whole bunch of studies. I won't go into it. I'm just going to give you the frame that suggests that costly and seemingly arbitrary ritual commitment to absurd ideas deepens trust, galvanizes group solidarity for common defense, and blinds members to exit strategies. The most compelling, and this is sort of the paradox of human cooperation, the most compelling arguments for human cooperation are actually the most absurd ones. I mean, think about beliefs in sort of religious deities, you know, three in one, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. I mean, that's patently incomprehensible and absurd. In fact, when we do experiments and say, okay, little, little Johnny, he's caught in Wisconsin, his foot's in the water under a rock, the water's rising, praise to God to save him. At exactly the same moment, little Mary, she's in Australia, she falls down on the railroad track, she can't get up, a train's coming, she asks God to save her. What does God do? Well, no one says, wham, bang, he does it. Everybody asks, including priests and imams and rabbis, how fast is the train going? How many kids? Is there anybody else in the family? It is literally incomprehensible to think about those sorts of things. By contrast, fully reasoned social contracts that regulate individual interests to share costs and benefits are more liable to collapse. And that's why there really is no convenient social contract basis for society that has survived very long. If you go by backward induction, right, if there's a better deal down the line, then it's a good, good thing to defect on the first move. Now, here are just some of the properties of sacred values. It's like when land becomes holy land. They're insensitive to quantity. They're insensitive to material trade-offs. They have privileged links to the emotion. They generate actions independent of prospects for success. They're bound to notions of personal and collective identity, who you are and whom you trust. And we have distinct moral imaging signatures. I just set the abstract conditions that neurophysiologists look for, psychologists look for. So Greg Burns' team at uh, Emory, the neuroeconomics team, and Antonio and Hannah Damasio at USC have been working on this aspect of trying to find the neural signatures. And basically what we find is that people treat sacred values as rule-bound duties. You have to do them no matter what. There's no weighing of costs and benefits. They're also insensitive to normative social influences. So sacred values are not normative at all. In fact, you show they're completely insensitive to what anybody, even in your own family and cohort, think about it once they become internalized. They're insensitive to temporal and spatial discounting. So events in the very distant future and the very distant past can be much, much more psychologically compelling than even near events. Think about it. Think about the events that motivate people in Kosovo or the Islamic Mujahideen 
or Gettysburg or the founding events of the revolution, they're much more motivating for political action than are uh, standard events. And people are blind to exit strategies. Doesn't matter what the other side offers. People can't even recognize them. And we've been working in places like Lebanon, Israel, Palestine. Well, you can read them all. And concentrating lately on terrorism and intractable conflicts, for example, between uh, the Iranians and the Americans, the Palestinians, the Israelis, the Indians and the Pakistanis, and the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and the Japanese. And so how do we proceed? And I'll move, finish up. We will we interview political and military leaders to generate hypotheses. Then we do lab experiments to test possibility. And then we experimentally design mass surveys to test real world reliability in the field. We found backfire effects. So if you offer monetary incentives to compromise a sacred value, people feel insulted. And support for things like suicide bombing will increase. Uh, rejection of compromise will increase. But if you offer a symbolic gesture of no material value whatsoever, such as an apology or a simple show of respect, then we find that even hardcore radical militants, say Israeli settlers or the Hamas or the PIJ, who we work a lot with, uh, show remarkably declining uh, resistance to <coughs> compromise and to violence. Just to give you an example, uh, recent what we did, uh, we got together some Israelis, senior Israelis, Saudis, Americans, uh, and Iranians to try to open up uh, conflict negotiations over nuclear development in the Middle East. And we started talking about sacred values, and we suggested to President Rouhani of Iran that he make a gesture on the Holocaust, which would speak to the Americans and the Israelis. He wasn't that interested in the Israelis, but the Israelis were. <laughs> The Israelis agreed that in exchange they would agree to enrichment uh, of uranium, that the Iranians would be able to enrich uranium but not stockpile it, and indeed uh, President Rouhani agreed and made that gesture in New York. And when sacred values become embedded in fused social groups, then members of these groups become willing to collectively defend or advance these values costly sacrifices and extreme actions in ways resistant to material trade-offs and normative social influence, even unto death. There are no game theoretical accounts I know of that deal with devoted actors. I'm trying to get some people at Santa Fe to do it. <laughs> One way we measure it, this is a really interesting way. This is on the iPad. So you have a circle, right, that's me or the issue, and you can slide it towards the group, or you can slide the issue towards the group. And we find that if people slide the me into the group, completely into the group, or the issue completely into me, they are qualitatively different than all the other people. There's a dichotomous distribution. And so, for example, fighters in Misrata, you know, during the, uh, during the rebellion against Gaddafi, the fighters would actually have a pictorial representation of this. They have two circles, and then circles touching, and then two circles slightly overlapping, and then half overlapping and totally overlapping, the fighters actually would pencil in the last one and say, this is us, until they ripped apart the page and said, there is no difference between us and them. And those are the devoted actors. We have many identities, many hats we can wear, but devoted actors have one primary reference group. This is just the final point. We just finished a study in Lebanon with Shia Sunni and uh, Christians, and what we found is that highly fused people, people fused with their group, 
are much more likely to make costly sacrifices and extreme actions. But here's an interesting thing. People who are also fused with their group but don't believe in parochial values, believe in universal values, they were least likely to engage in conflict. Think of religious libertarians. And this is the last one. So what's wrong-headed approaches, for example, in approaches to terrorism or political negotiations? So first, in a political negotiation, if you use a business-like negotiation based on costs and benefits, it usually backfires, and that's why you get intractable conflicts and wars that never resolve. It's a little bit like, give me a piece of your child and I'll give you a piece of mine. You can't do that. You can reframe the values. You can reprioritize values like Lincoln did uh, during, the American during the Civil War when he said there are two values for the Union. One is preservation of the Union. The one is the end of slavery to preserve the moral sanctity of the Union. And he prioritized first preservation of the Union, but at the end of the war, he prolonged the war because he said unless we end slavery, there will be no union of any moral value. So what we get in classical military, you know, I go a lot and brief the Pentagon or the White House, and you always hear them saying, well, we're going to make it too costly for the enemy to resist. I mean, I was with uh, at the White House and the National Security Council, and one of Dick Cheney's staff says, don't these young people realize we're going to bomb them, we're going to have to kill them? I said to her, well, are we going to bomb London? You're going to bomb Morocco? There's got to be another way. And in fact, these people don't respond to cost-benefit analysis. Terrorists in Nome, for example, they found out that they were being bugged. The NSA picked them up when they went to Afghanistan and Uzbeki camp. They came home. They told the German police, surrounded the, the place, bugged their apartment. They were listed, they found the bugs. The Germans were down below in their cars. They took kitchen knives, they went outside, they went to the cars, they stabbed the tires because the Germans were told not to engage and they obeyed. And then they went upstairs and they continued plotting. So think about it, these kinds of people aren't really going to respond to traditional cost-benefit analysis. You've got to give them alternative heroes, values, and ideas, and that's another story, and thank you very much.